Good morning, Suzanne. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Talking to you from New York. A beautiful sunny day here. Oh, and that skyline. Is, is there anything like it? I mean, in all your world travels, is there anything like that skyline? No, no. New York is special. I've always thought New York is a pretty special place. So I'm very happy to be here. This evening, I have the launch of my book. So I'm really excited about that. That moment of launching a book, because as, as an author myself, it's relinquishing your story to the rest of the world. How easy is that for you to transform into? It is an amazing moment, isn't it? Because it goes from, you know, you kind of own this book. You know, you've kind of looked after this book. You've created it. I mean, this book in particular, Wavewalker, has taken me many years to write. And I actually ended up putting it to one side and I ended up having to write or or deciding to write a biography of my now late husband, who was very senior in the UK government. So I came back to it. So this has been a multi-year project for me, but it's always been the book I knew I, I had to write. Um, but then at the moment of the launch, effectively, you are letting go of it yeah. because now it's not yours anymore. Now it's any readers. Uh, <laughs> and you, it, it's it's a bit like a kind of parent kind of setting a child kind of free. You wait nervously to see what people think, but you also know that it's it's no longer in your control. The craziest thing about being a writer or an author is the fact that we have to live it first and then others get to interpret it. And it's like, wow, that's kind of a crazy little connection. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And particularly with a biography, you know, you are telling people about something that you experienced. And that's a very surreal thing because you're sharing, you know, something that really happened and you're letting people into it and then they're having their own interpretations of it. And what's really interesting is often somebody coming and looking at it with clear eyes, having not experienced it themselves, will come up with much more interesting interpretations or or kind of, you know, ways of thinking about it than you do yourself because you've been inside it. So my aim has been to tell the story as clearly and as accurately and let it build up uh, over time. And I'm really curious to see what people think of it and what they make of it. I'm still fascinated with the idea that you set it aside for a little bit, because as as a writer, it's it's one of those things. It's like, OK, what did I miss by setting it aside? Or did I need to ferment that story just a little bit so I could come back as a, a replenished writer? I found it really helpful to set this one aside because... Um, what enabled it, this is a very emotional book. I yeah. mean, I was trapped on a boat for basically a decade. Um, I was uh, shipwrecked in the Indian Ocean. I was very badly injured. I then had to find a way to escape from this boat from a voyage that started off as three years, ended up being 10 years. Um, and as I say, I was effectively kind of you know stuck on this boat. Superficially, it looked amazing. So that's the other thing you've got to get your head around. Superficially, this looks incredible. You're on a boat, and sometimes we're in the South Pacific, but the reality on board was just so different. So it's a complicated and emotional story and a very kind of complicated and emotional story for me. So having written it, I didn't actually intend to set it to one side, but circumstances meant that I had to because I, I had to go and write this other book and then come back to it. As a writer, I found that really helpful because... That separation from the book meant that when I came back to it, I could be much more ruthless about thinking about the bits of the story that really told the tale and the bits of the story that I had in there just because 
you know, I'd spent a lot of time writing them and I was very attached to my text or I thought this was a very nice description of something. So I was able to kind of cut it much more ruthlessly. And I think, you know, a better book emerged from it because of that. You know, you spoke something about how people think, you know, that, that being out there on the water for all this would be like the greatest thing that ever happened. I compare it to like RVing. You know, so many people want to be out on the road all the time in their RV. Uh-uh, I can't even make it past three days without having to ha- go back home. And and you didn't. You, you were out there for a decade and you're trapped out there at least i can go out the door here yeah that's right and you know one of the really interesting things about the story is it was my father's dream he wanted to sail around the world uh he wanted to follow captain cook around the world he promised me when we set sail i was seven i'd be back by the time i was 10 i'm going to leave everything behind you know my doll my best friend my doll's house that was going to be in my grandfather's attic but i'd be back when i was 10 everything would be waiting for me And, of course, that's not what happened. You know, we got shipwrecked. It was an incredibly dangerous voyage, which, of Mm. course, I hadn't Mm. kind of understood, you know, setting off. And he had no intention, it turned out, over time of ever coming back. You know, we just kept on sailing, despite the fact that we actually had a moment about four years in when we had a vote. And I was very clear I wanted to come home, and so was my brother. But my father overrode us and kept on sailing. And the reason is that for him, this was a wonderful lifestyle. You know, if he fell out with somebody, he could pull the anchor up, he could keep going. You know, he didn't have to answer to any sort of authority. But what he didn't seem to understand was that this freedom, this dream that he was pursuing, effectively became an imprisonment for me. You know, I was stuck on this boat. I had no choice of where we were going. I couldn't have friendships. I couldn't go to school. You know, I I only ever saw a doctor, you know, once or twice in that kind of 10 years. I never really saw saw a dentist. We're often short of food, sometimes short of water. It was very difficult on that boat as a child. Wow. You know, I j- just hearing you share that story is it's like, OK, you're in New York right now. You were on this boat. That's how how did you even adapt back to a real world lifestyle? Yeah, it was very difficult. This kind of slight shades of crocodile Dundee, yeah, I have to say. <laughs> uh, Yes, I decided the only way I was going to get off this boat was by educating myself. And that was Mm. a huge fight because my parents wanted me to work on the boat, uh, cooking and cleaning, because we ran completely out of money. um, And they started taking crew on board who were paying to come on board, and they had to be kind of cooked and looked after. So for four, five, six hours a day, I was expecting to do that. Very little space on board, you know, one tiny table. Uh, one toilet, you can imagine you're a teenage girl, mainly kind of Mm. male crew, not a great environment at all. But I decided I was going to educate myself. That was how I was going to get off this boat. I managed to get myself registered at a correspondence school. I started teaching myself, hiding on the boat uh, to learn, posting lessons off when we reached port. (laughs) And eventually I wrote to every university uh, I'd ever heard of in the world, which ended up being the kind of elite university, just because those are the ones I'd ever heard of. Um, by this point, by the way, I'm 16, my brother's 15, my parents have effectively abandoned us and gone off sailing, leaving us behind on our own in New Zealand. Um, I get a, a kind of offer of an interview from Oxford, of all places, having sent them a couple of essays. Pretty much everywhere else, by the way, said they wouldn't consider me, either because I didn't have the right passport or because my education was just so crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Oxford did, to give them credit. And they said if I could get myself back to the UK, um, they would give me an interview. So I went picking kiwi fruit. Terrible job, by the way. Um, (laughs) Got a really, really horrible job. Uh, Got enough money for an air ticket. Got back to the UK. Bet everything on that. 
Now, you might say that's the kind of end of the story. You know, I got myself into university, but you're right. You know, that I thought when I had done that, everything was going to be okay. What I found was academically, I could fill in the gaps, the huge holes yep, that I had. Yep. But socially, it was really difficult because I had nothing in common with the other students. I'd spent 10 years not really being able to have proper friendships. I, you know, hadn't had any of the same experiences of them. I remember somebody saying, you know, that I was the worst person at small talk that they'd ever met because I had no ability to do that. You know, I'd never been to a museum. I'd never been to an art gallery. I'd never been to a concert. It took a long time for me to figure out how to, you know, put my life back together. But I was very determined to do that. And, you know, I've gone on to have, you know, uh, you know, to get married. To, you know, I now have kind of three kids. So I've gone on to create that life. But it was very difficult. The time in your life, you, you, you were a teenage girl trapped on this boat. Those, those years as a teenager are so valuable to your adult life. And I just can't imagine, you know, going through the stress and the anxiety of this and then and then growing into that that dream of this is who I'm going to be and I'm going to reach out to these universities. I mean, to, to, that's inner strength. Was, is, was that the child's imagination saying, OK, if I can't be Superman on this boat, I'm going to be Superwoman somewhere else when I'm finally freed? Yeah, it's very interesting. So since I published the book, I've been working with some charities that are trying Good. to give access to education for kids, you know, who can't get education. And I've seen it in some of these other kids that I've been kind of talking to. I think when you're in very, very difficult circumstances, which I was, education is a lifeline yeah. because it is something that you can kind of control. Uh, and it is, you, you know, even as a child, even a child knows that education is possibly a route to somewhere. Now, you don't know if it's going to work, but, I mean, it's like braiding a rope and not knowing whether or not it's going to be kind of long enough to get you to the ground. You know you've got a chance. And and I just, you know, clutched onto that as the one thing that was going to get me out of the circumstance, you know, escape from this dream of my father's that I never really kind of agreed to be in and, and suddenly discovered myself trapped in. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it's... It's not an easy thing to do, and I don't know where that kind of resilience uh, came from, but th thank goodness it was there because it did enable me to escape. How big was this ship? Because, I mean, in this modern-day world, I mean, so many people think of a boat, and then, but they, they don't really visualize how big a ship can be. Yeah, so so in the book, actually, a very lovely friend of mine has, has painted the interior of the boat. She's a children's artist, so I have to say it all looks a little kind of uh, uh, a little kind of prettier than it actually was. But it, mm. it hopefully gives people a bit of a sense of it. Uh, she was a sixty-nine foot boat, but she had a bowsprit at the end, like a kind of gangplank. Yeah. So that bit didn't really count. About kind of five, six foot at the end didn't really count. She was very narrow, so down below. Uh, you only had one working toilet or head, uh, one tiny table that would sit about kind of five people, a kind of galley. Um, I had one bunk. I mean, I didn't even have a cabin. You know, and the bunk is, oh you can't sit up in the bunk because right. the, the ceiling is too low. So you could lie in it, but you can't sit in it. So I had a bunk and a drawer. And, you know, as time went on and we were taking these paying crew on board, we would often have you know, six, seven, eight crew on board, mainly men. Yeah. I was sharing kind of cabins with the crew. There was no kind of privacy, one toilet. Um, as I say, you know, it's not like I could get ashore and talk to a friend. So one of the things I had to really draw on was, you know, my kind of, I guess my kind of inner strength. I made up friends. I had kind of imaginary friends. Yep. I had some pen pals I would write to, but it was very difficult, I have to say, and, and not something that I would, you know, 
I certainly not something I've tried to <laughs> want to do at all with my children. I think it's not a circumstance you want to put your kids into. And that, by the way, was one of the reasons for writing the book, because I think there's a really interesting debate between the rights of parents and the rights of kids. And I think it's fantastic to have a dream, but you've got to be really careful when you drag your kids into that dream, whether it's kind of crossing mm -hmm. the US in an RV, as you referred to, or kind of sailing around the world for a decade. Your kids don't get a choice about being in there. So you need to really think about, you know, the choices that you're making for them and create a little bit of balance. The realism of this, first of all, the book we're talking about is Wave Walker, which is out officially tonight is when you're unveiling it to the rest of the world. But the thing that you you bring forward here that a lot of people, they're going to be shocked by it, that, that you, the Stockholm Syndrome, I mean, I mean, you really, really went through this and a lot of people have heard about it, but now they get to hear from you about it. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? You'll, you'll see in the book that as a child, I don't really criticize my parents. And I, I've tried to kind of write the book as I experienced it. So the reader can kind of come with me on this journey. As an adult looking back, I feel very kind of differently. But as a child, you don't really question your environment. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't question your parents. It's very difficult to kind of question your parents. So I didn't. And also, as you say, you have a kind of Stockholm syndrome of, you know, you have to kind of, you know, you become very attached to people, even if they're, they're, they behave quite badly towards you. Um, but the one thing I did know was I didn't want to stay there. And I became increasingly convinced of that, that I had to get away from there. And as I became older, and of course, as you become older, you do start to kind of separate from your parents. I began to understand that my parents didn't have my best interests at heart. You know, if they did, they would have at some point stopped. They would have allowed me to go to school. They would have allowed me to have friendships. But they kept on prioritizing what they wanted to do. And if I didn't find a way to escape, uh, and the only way I could think of was education, I was going to be trapped in this world forever. I mean, I would have no way ever to kind of, you know, how do you get back into normal society right. if you spent your your entire childhood, I, I call it like being a sea gypsy. You know, you're, you're kind of living in almost like a stateless world with no schooling, you know, no authority figures, you know, and nowhere to go. You know, I had no contact back with my relatives back in the UK. I, I just can't imagine how you dealt with being somewhere that you didn't want to be. Now, as, as a guy, maybe it's just a guy thing, but I, I would think that I was a pirate and I would I would live in a world of let's pretend and, and I would do everything humanly possible to just kind of disconnect from, from that challenge that's right there in front of me. Yeah, I think I did a little bit of that. So I would go and hide and study and I would pretend other students in my imagination. So I would kind of pretend that I wasn't there as much as I possibly could. Um, I kind of fought uh, to try, because unfortunately it was a very gendered world as well. So mm. I was expected to kind of cook and clean and I, you know, I wasn't really allowed to do too much up on deck, but I fought against some of these kind of norms that my parents tried to impose on me. Um, and as I say, as I got older, I started to question it and I knew I had to get away. Mm -hmm. Um, but the thing is, I mean, how do you escape when you're a kid, when you're on a boat, you've been sailing now for years, you don't have a passport, you have no money, you have no contact to any of your relatives, you're not going to a school, so you're not kind of encountering anybody that you can kind of go to. And by the way, if you do go to somebody, you're blowing up your entire universe, because that's all I knew. I mean, all I had was the boat and my parents. So if I blew it up, what would I do? Where would I go? So you really are completely trapped. And and now as an adult and as a mum looking back, I realize how trapped I was. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's that's probably why, you know, I what I did was I almost withdrew into myself and decided kind of education was the answer. And I would just keep on doing that. I would fight my parents where I needed to. And then I would leave. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, the, what I did. That that was one of the areas I was going to hit. When you when you're on a boat with your parents and you're fighting with them, the, you only had 61 feet to to get away from them. Yeah, yeah. So that is very difficult because it's not like you can kind of get on your bike and kind of go somewhere <laughs> or go and see a friend or, or or anything. I mean, you can't. You know, you literally can't. You know, because you're surrounded by ocean. Um, I would go to the kind of very bow of the boat, the front of the boat, and I'd sit on the bowsprit. Um, but that kind of didn't give you, I mean, that wasn't very far away. I think what I learned to do was kind of withdraw mentally so that, you know, I was, I could kind of create an imaginary world, which was different to the world that I was in. I was quite good at doing that. Um, but effectively, I was trapped on this boat and and there was nowhere to go. Um and, you know, that's why, you know, the moment I could and I got this invite to go to this interview and I did, I never really went back, you know, because I, I you know, as I got older and I kind of looked back at it, you know, I realized that I'd been kind of trapped uh, against my will on this boat for so long. And, you know, I never, ever wanted to be in that situation again. When you write a book such as this. You, you are going into caverns inside your head and heart that have been locked up for decades, and you've literally tried to forget about it. But when you write a book like this, you're walking through a path. And I, I just got to ask you, how many tears were left on the computer uh, when you were putting these stories and paragraphs together? Because, I mean, I, it, it had to have hit you emotionally. Yeah, no, it did. It definitely did. I mean, the hardest bit, to be honest, was going back and reading my diary. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm a very kind of pedantic writer, so I spent almost a year and a half putting together the whole timeline for this book before I even started writing it. But the diaries were the hardest thing because all of a sudden you're kind of listening to a young girl kind of talking about her environment and you're thinking, you know, that, you know, as, as, almost as a mum kind of looking back, you're thinking, you know, I want to go and get you out of there. You know, this is, you know, you shouldn't be there. You need to find a kind of way out. So that was very emotional. And the shipwreck was also very hard. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I wrote the first draft of that chapter, showing it to a friend of mine who's also a writer. And she said, you know, it's really interesting. And by the way, you experience the shipwreck through my eyes. So I'm down below, mm-hmm. which is a very odd place to experience a shipwreck. from, Because normally shipwrecks are always written by, you know, the captain, yeah. usually the man who's kind of up on deck, you know, kind of you know, saving the boat. And kind of, I'm the little girl down below and it's kind of happening and I kind of know what's happening but I almost don't know what's happening so it's a very odd and eerie experience so she read this chapter and she said well it's really good but it reads like you're suffering from you know um, post-traumatic stress you know syndrome because it's almost like you put a sheet of glass between yourself and it you're gonna have to break through it and actually go back to what it felt like and I did Um, and the kind of chapter that's now there does that but I admit I had kind of nightmares again afterwards. I had nightmares as a kid about the wave. I had nightmares after writing the chapter. I, I do hope I don't give any readers nightmares, although I have had a couple of readers who told me that they've had a couple of them. <laughs> uh, it is a very, it's a very kind of difficult chapter, but, you know, uh, incredibly, you know, incredibly intense and written from a perspective that you don't normally get. Wow. Suzanne, I could talk to you all day. Wow, wow, wow. You've got to come back to this show anytime in the future. I'd love to. Well, congratulations on the book. You have yourself a great time tonight. Make sure you take lots of notes because there's a future self of in you that is going to want to look back at this and just remember it forever. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate spending the time today. Really looking forward to this evening, and I really hope people enjoy the book. You'd be brilliant today, okay? Thank you.